Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and I'm your host for Money Management here here every Saturday morning at 9 Pacific, and we're talking about the markets and the economy and, again, hopefully giving you some insights into all the fun stuff that's been happening out there these last few days. And we start with our traditional dramatic reading of the closes from yesterday. The Dow ended the week at 36,231, off by just four points on Friday. The S&P ended at 4677. The Nasdaq lower at 14,951. The Russell 2000 ended the week at 2181. Gold slipped further down to 1797 an ounce. That's down to about $50 an ounce in the last week. Silver off at 22.39 an ounce, crude higher at 78.93 a barrel. The 10-year Treasury, which we'll be talking about in more detail, uh, up at 1.76%, and soft white wheat was quoted last at 10.69 a bushel. For the first five trading days of the year, which basically was this last week, uh, the Nasdaq's down 4%. Uh, that's from year end. The uh, S&P off by 1.8, and the Dow basically down just a fraction because folks are rotating into some of the value stocks uh, as a result of the rise in rates. Well, let's go back to Wednesday when all the fun started. Um, on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve uh, released the meeting minutes, uh, the notes of the meeting minutes from their last meeting, which was in December. And it showed the discussion about reducing its balance sheet shortly after it starts raising rates later this year. And quoting from those minutes, uh, it says, While participants generally continued to anticipate that inflation would decline significantly over the course of 2022 as supply constraints eased, almost all stated that they had revised up their forecast of inflation for 22, excuse me, for 2022 notably, and many did so for 2023 as well, end quote. So, again, once they released the minutes, uh, you know, that's basically when the Fed decided to ramp up its tapering schedule and to get rid of the term transitory when they're talking about inflation. Now they uh, appear to be talking about, they meaning, sorry, the Federal Reserve, mean to be talking about at least three increases in the interest rates this year, now, before anyone starts doing reverse half-gainers off high buildings, we're talking about one-quarter of one percent increment increases, so not exactly racing to the moon. And they'll likely start, uh, what, March, I'm thinking, that's the next time they actually have a, a meeting. So most investors are treating that forecast pretty much as a foregone conclusion. Well, it isn't. If you go back to the 1990s, you'll see that the Fed has sometimes raised or lowered rates in ways that not only have taken uh, our friendly markets by surprise, but has gone against their own expectations, you know, whatever. Uh, but the market did drop almost immediately after the minutes were released on Wednesday because it was said that those minutes were more, and I'm using the Wall Street word, hawkish, than Wall Street had expected. What happened then was that the 10-year Treasury note hit its high for the day and the S&P hit its low for the session. Now, here's the part from the Fed notes that 
kind of got everybody all excited. And again, I'm quoting from the Fed notes. It says, um, yeah, let's see. Participants generally noted that given their individual outlooks for the economy, the labor market, and inflation, it may become warranted to increase the federal funds rate sooner or at a faster pace than participants had earlier anticipated. Some participants, uh, we're talking about the Fed board here, some participants also noted it could be appropriate to reduce the size of the Fed's balance sheet relatively soon after beginning to raise the federal funds rate. Some participants judged that a less accommodative future stance of policy, now remember this is how the Fed talks to each other, would likely be warranted and that the committee should convey a strong commitment to address elevated inflation pressures. Anyway, that's what it said. So my opinion is that this announcement was hardly a surprise. Traders have known it's been coming for some time. It's not like the uh, Fed's been hiding its light under a bushel. I think it was just simply the realization that, hey, these guys are for real, made them react. Now, the minutes seemed exactly, as I said, in line with what the Fed had said in its policy statement uh, three weeks ago, but that didn't matter because uh, that's not how traders work. Uh, the, ma the market started to pull back shortly after the news was released Wednesday. And then, as we know, the selling continued into Thursday and to a lesser extent into yesterday. So, But by the end of trading on Thursday, the S&P had dropped down below 4,700. Now, on Tuesday, that is to say two days prior, it had reached an all-time high of 4,818. <laughs> you... <laughs> You can't. You won't be marked down if you're uh, surprised by, <clears throat> excuse me, by that uh, rapid drop. But there's really not much to worry about, in my opinion. Uh, the Wall Streeters are simply shifting their assumptions regarding interest rate hikes. Uh, Jay Hatfield of Infrastructure Capital Management had this observation. I think it kind of makes sense. He said, and I'm quoting. You've seen the move rotating from tech high growth and momentum stocks to value cyclical and income stocks. It's the liquidity that's driving this, not the interest rate necessarily. He goes on to say when there's liquidity, in other words, available cash, you go for momentum because the Fed is forcing stocks and bonds to rally. If the Fed's going to pull that liquidity, take it away, if you will, you say, I want to be in what's in the cheapest and the lowest risk, unquote. So currently, that would include things like value issues and uh, things of that nature. So this is just another example of how the markets work in cycles. Not everybody goes up all the time, nor do they go down all the time. So the history of the S&P, uh, the returns, surrounding this first rate hike in all Federal Reserve tightening cycles, this going back to 1971, well, the markets were positive in the first year after the rate hike seven out of ten times. Returns over the next couple of years were only negative once. So nothing here is saying that rate hikes are automatically bearish. And I think you would be marked down if you came to that conclusion. Investors who overall their overhaul, sorry, their portfolios based on what the Fed seems likely to do. Well, you could get stranded out there uh, on one of those wakeboards with, <laughs> with nobody in immediate uh, help to come get you. Um, the Fed meets again in three weeks. And again, in this next meeting, I don't think you'll see much happening. But 
come March, there's likely a pretty good chance that the Fed will increase interest rates for the first time in more than three years. And again, at this uh, point, we're still talking about only quarter point increments. So even though we don't see them rising by much, that is to say, uh, interest rates, we do think that the long-term rates, now long-term rates are market set, not uh, the Fed. The Fed controls short-term interest rates to the, well, to the extent they can. But in any case, long-term rates are likely to stay within a range this year. So that suggests that the Fed still got plenty of room for one or more rate hikes. And even though we don't see them raising by much, again, we look for them staying uh, uh, pretty much range-bound. So acting in advance of anything uh, like, you know, an announcement that might happen, that would be wrong. False signals are everywhere, and stocks are pretty dang good at seeing through such noise. But even if you'd seem or feel that things are looking a little rocky for a bit, you know, just stay frosty, as we like to say. Remember that the usually false media-inspired fears are often look right for a spell when negativity strikes. But markets, bull markets climb a wall of worry based chiefly on these reasonably seeming false fears, and we suspect that that's what's going to happen after this current confusion settles down a bit as well. Ben Carlson writes a blog, a very good blog in my opinion, called uh, Wealth of Common Sense, and he had some, I think, uh, interesting comments this past week. He said, the current bull market, you know, you have a test here, I have multiple guests, uh, the current bull market feels A, long in the tooth, B, overdone, C, like it's on its last legs, and D, all of the above. Well, you know, it would be kind of hard to argue with any of these choices if you just look at the numbers out of context. From the bottom in early March of 2009, when we made the turn, the S&P is now up over 800% on a total return basis. Now, remember, total return is your appreciation plus dividends, and in the S&P, Dividends are a significant part of your return, something on the order of almost 55-0%. Uh, so do not just poo-poo those dudes. Now that uh, So in any case, 80, 800% uh, since 2009, that's about 19% a year for 13 years. <laughs> Let me assure you, based on many years of doing this, there is no way that we can keep those levels of returns forever. You know, eventually they'll be lower, but that's not code for negative. Lower is just lower. And there will be corrections. Of that, I am 100% certain. Timing, I will not go there. But let, let, let's consider this. From 1969 to 1978, that's the period when I started in this business, the stock market was up in that 10-year period just 38%. I was a real rocket scientist. Oh, I was so glad I got into this business. That. That's just over 3% a year. Now, when you consider that inflation was running at an average, average of 6.5% per year, not just for a few months, but for multiple years, like 10 years, real returns were negative. And that means, you know, your return minus tax minus inflation. Real returns were negative. And oh, by the way, you had the dubious benefit of a top tax rate, income tax rate of 70% as well. It was just lovely. Now, this period also included, and I'm here to tell you that was true, a brutal recession and a bear market in 73 and 74. 
stocks dropped 50%. Now, that was a not a good decade, shall we say. But after that one, it got even better because in the 80s, well, excuse me, I guess it was 70 to 80s, we got hit by interest rates through the roof, low stock valuations, and two recessions, not just one, two in the span of three years from 80 to 82. But as it does, the market had already started looking past those high rates in inflation. Fast forward from 79 to 83, the stock markets were up 120%. This one, this little factoid, I think is even better. There was not even one single year that was down from 1982 to 1989. Now, we did have that one-day sale in October 1987 when everything went down 22%. However, that includes that. And in that time, again, from 82 to 89, the average annual return for the stock market was 174 so, but let's today, even if rates do slow down, excuse me, if returns do slow down from here, and we do experience a handful of bear markets in the years ahead, history shows that the bull markets can last a lot longer than you think. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but I want to get to this, uh, what's going on with the tech stocks, and what is this relationship with higher yields, higher interest rates? Well, the the tech-heavy Nasdaq, again, it's off about 4% this past week, and it underperformed the S&P, which was, well, just fractionally lowered down in the same period. So the yield, and what the yield we're talking about primarily is the 10-year Treasury because that is the reference point for most interest rates in the United States. So the yield on that seems to be playing catch up to a higher inflation to higher inflation expectations. And that calls for prices to rise more than 2% annually over the long term. So the rising bond yields, the interest rates have triggered hedge funds to sell growth focused tech shares. Now rising bond yields, well okay, here's how it went. Last what a week ago Friday, the end of the year, quote unquote, uh, the 10 year was yielding 1.51%. Yesterday, the 7th of January, one week later, it was at 1.76%. Now, you look at it and say, now, wait a minute, that's 0.2%. Big deal. Well, no, you don't look at it that way. It's a percentage move. The difference between 1.76 from 1.51 is an increase of 16.5%. And you look at it that way, you say, whoa, that's like getting a shot in the head. You know, you don't... <laughs> Bonds don't like those kinds of moves. And so uh, further, the uh, hedge funds, well, not just hedge funds, but other people in general have been dumping tech stocks uh, in the four sessions from the 30th of December until this last Tuesday. Uh, at Goldman Sachs says that that was the biggest sale in dollar terms of these shares in more than 10 years. So why are they crashing? Well, it isn't because they aren't doing their business as well. That has nothing to do with it. Easy monetary policy has been a tailwind for these folks. I think we're all pretty much in agreement there. But this is the uh, easy money is about to get less easy. The 10-year Treasury closed at the highest levels in April, uh, since April of last year. And the markets are anticipating a couple rate hikes even later in the year. All of this, of course 
is an after-the-fact justification for what's been going on for the better part of a year, but I think it kind of makes sense. Now, some of these growth companies, not just the huge techs, but some of the growth companies are losing money in the short term. Others are profitable, but all, all are aggressively investing capital now so they it, to create bigger profits in the years to come. Increased debt costs can hinder their growth and can make their future cash flows even less valuable. So the further in the future an earnings stream is expected, the less valuable it becomes when you compare it with the yield on the safest asset, which is a treasury bond. Safe in the sense that you'll always get your money back, not that you couldn't have a loss if you sold in between. So tech stocks are seen as sensitive to rising yields because... First, they signal that the economic environment is becoming one in which they may lag value stocks. So the higher long-term bond yields, long-term meaning uh, beyond uh, 10 years, uh, higher long-term bond yields mean that markets expect higher inflation. And that's a reflection of strong economic demand. Not a bad thing. But higher yields also mean a greater discount on future profits. The value stocks which are often large and mature in their life cycles, you know, blue chips kind of thing. They rely on that strong economic demand for earnings to grow at a fast clip. The oil companies, manufacturers, financial companies, those are the most among the most uh, economically sensitive value stock. And so a lot of folks, uh, individuals as well as institutions, have been rotating out of the techs and moving into the value shares. That's what's been going on underneath the uh, surface for some time now. Now, second, the higher yields come as growth stocks have already outperformed value for several months, so that makes the growth shares more relatively expensive. And at some point, yeah, the bond yields are going to stop going up, but until they do, you can expect the growth stocks to have this kind of cloud hanging over them. So, oh, we we're in the middle of... I won't say middle, but we're in what's called a secular bull market. Secular bull markets last for multiple years. Cyclical bull markets last for shorter periods. They can last for multiple years, but generally they're within a year's time or something, but shorter. So we're in a long-term bull market. And again, since March of 2009, we're up 17.6% annualized, second only to the uh, S&P from August 82 to March of 2000. But the big difference, and this just amazes me to, be, to no end, is the degree to which this current market is both feared and hated. You know, <laughs> we're afraid of it, and yet, why is it still going up? It shouldn't be doing that. Uh, you know, I think I want to kind of give you some context for some of this market stuff that's going on, you know, kind of put it in, give you some perspective to work on. And, you know, this big focus on the tech shares. Well, the tech companies, the broad brush, uh, make a, make up a much larger portion of the S&P than they do the U.S. economy. So they may be perceived as having a bigger effect than uh, what they do in the real world. But government spending makes up a much larger portion of the U.S. economy than does the U.S. stock market. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, when the the course uh, w excuse me with 
the course of the bug development still unclear and inflation expected to keep rising. The Fed poised to raise interest rates. Anything can happen. You know, what's more, the things that feel most certain aren't as obvious as they seem. So folks need to be aware that taking drastic action, to be aware that taking drastic action, <laughs> I think actions is the word I'm looking for, sorry. Drastic actions that later on, they may very well wish they could undo. Now, just as an aside, I just found this yesterday. Um, and it, it's, a, uh, it's an ETF, exchange traded fund, so that means it's listed. The symbol is EQRR, Echo Quebec Romeo Romeo. It's uh, the ProShares Equities for Rising Rates. Pays a 1.6% dividend. It's trading at its high at 54.84, but that might be a way just for what it's worth to you to consider, uh, you know, something to give you a little uh, defense, but. That's just for what it's worth. I know nothing about it other than I just learned it yesterday, so there you are. Now, uh, Brad McMillan, he's chief investment officer at Commonwealth Financial. He had this to say. He said, just as for the economy as a whole, the market story for this year will be a return to normal. As hiring continues, spending grows, and businesses hire and invest, the economy will be normal. The government is normalizing policy on the same expectations. When you look at the big picture, the overarching theme is that this year will bring us back to something like normal, unquote. Now, uh, Jay Hatfield of Infrastructure Capital Management had these observations. You've seen a move of people rotating from tech, high growth, and momentum shares to value, cyclical, and income stocks like we talked previously. Again, it's the liquidity that's driving this, not the interest rate necessarily. When there's liquidity, you go for momentum because the Fed's forcing stocks and bonds to rally. If Fed's going to take that liquidity out, you say, I want to be in what's the cheapest, the lowest risk. And again, we're over to the uh, values, uh, value side of the equation currently. Awanda Senior Market Analyst, a gentleman named Edward Moya, had these observations. He said U.S. stocks are struggling for direction. First half of this year will be all about a strong U.S. growth outlook that should benefit cyclical shares, but a sustained pullback with tech stocks is not justified, given that the Fed hasn't officially started their interest rate hiking cycle, unquote. Now, we're talking about rotation and, you know, kind of positioning yourself um, ahead of changes with that the interest rates may bring about. But I, I think I, in this context I was mentioning to you, I think this is kind of important, especially if you're a, a fan of the indexes, if you're a big index investor. Because if you own the S&P 500, only 5% of that entire portfolio is in energy or basic materials. In other words, the issues that uh, can benefit from the recovery. If you own the Dow, which is another clump of... Uh, investments and could be in an ETF or any other way. If you own the Dow, that number drops under 3%. You know, and they kicked out ExxonMobil. Exxon but in any case, and if you own the NASDAQ, your exposure to energy and materials is zero. They don't have any. So put it another way, 
you could read, see, hear about these sectors doubling, tripling, and they will have no effect on any of these, none, other than perhaps, uh, you know, hey, those are going up, maybe we should too, but not directly. So you can include financials and industrials into the mix too, because the actual definition of the NASDAQ 100, which is really the when we're talking about the NASDAQ, we're talking about 100 of their top shares. It's 100 of the NASDAQ's largest non-financial companies. So, in addition to no exposure to energy or materials in the uh, NASDAQ, you, by definition, aren't getting any financials either. And you won't get much exposure to industrials coming in at only just about 4% of the NASDAQ. And this compares with 14% in the 14% financials in the S&P, 9% industrial. So the Nasdaq is almost 46% technology. That's why it's been getting to be Jesus kicked out of it here these last couple of weeks. Uh, but when you add the communications, you know, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, then you're looking at over 80% exposure to the group. So. To help understand, uh, you know, this is an important consideration. You don't want to overstretch yourself in thinking, well, I'll just stay with the index because now your indexes may not be providing the kinds of returns you've enjoyed uh, these last couple of years because they don't have any, uh, what would I say, positions, exposure, better word, exposure to the sectors that are likely going to be benefiting in the near term. So there you are. I wanted to make a point about uh, the uh, non-farm payrolls, which came out yesterday, um, the jobs report, if you will, for December. We added 199,000 folks, which is a bunch, but it's uh, below expectations. But, uh, you know, there's been, there's always upward revisions, it would seem, so that uh, this time they added back, added in 141,000 jobs that weren't previously quoted from October and November. So that shows a total increase in payrolls, 340,000. So that's better. Um, but what's happening is the national unemployment rate down down to 3.9%. And that's significant because that's the Fed's best guess about the long-term average unemployment rate is 4. So it's strongly hinted that going below 4 would be a key trigger for starting to raise short-term rates. Now, we've also learned uh, in that report that there was an increase in average hourly earnings up uh, from a year ago, and so they have now total worker pay is up 9.9% in the past year, up 8.5% since February of 20, so we're ahead of the inflation rate, and, well, maybe keeping pace with it, but in any case, it'd be, it means the total worker pay is about back where it would be if the bug hadn't showed up. So that is a good thing and helps provide further strength for the market going forward. Not just for the market, but for the economy going forward. So it gives you some additional reasons for mm, comfort, in my opinion. Uh, you know, folks are, this is not news. I mean, this has been going on for multiple years, but folks are starved for yield. We've got inflation running just under 7%. And again, I don't think that's long live, but nonetheless, that's where it is. And the 10-year, you know, it got as high as 1.76%. We've seen uh, in last year, $209 billion moved into fixed income, basically bond-type ETFs. This despite a 2% loss of principal 
and with the Fed, as we talked earlier, projecting three rates, three rate hikes this year. Remember, please, that as interest rates rise, prices of existing bonds tend to drop. Now, it goes the other way, too, but we're in that part of the cycle now. So, uh, 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 as measured by the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index, the bond market return underperformed the broader market for the last year with a total return, if that's appropriate, of minus 4%. That's compared with the S&P's total return of 28% as of the middle part of uh, last month. Now, there's a whole lot of money, a whole lot of money out there, and it needs a home. Now, I could be wrong, obviously, but if I had to guess, I'd say that that's one of the reasons the 10-year doesn't get above 3% for some time. Greg Basick of AXS Investment says, quote, Treasury yields are rising on investor optimism of the economic recovery, and the manufacturing sector data supports that contention. Specifically, he added, the investor sentiment was buoyed by the trifecta of positive news on supply chain issues subsiding, prices of factory inputs declining, and manufacturing employment increasing. Unquote. Now, there's another thing you need to be aware of, and we talked about this in previous programs. It's called duration. It measures a bond's price sensitivity to interest rate moves, and it's expressed in years. So the higher the duration, the more your bond or bond fund's price will change when interest rates move, so therefore the higher the interest rate risk. For example, if you've got a bond with a duration of 10 years, say it matures in, uh, you know, 20, what would it be, 31, um, you, you, could, you could appreciate 10% in price if interest rates fell by 1%. However, if interest rates would rise by 1%, which is more likely over the next so long, that bond price would fall 10%. Doesn't matter uh, the quality of the bond. Is it taxable? Is it tax-free? Is it corporate? Is it government? has nothing to do with any of that. It's strictly a math-driven deal. So a bond with a duration of two years could appreciate 2% if the bonds fall by one. And if they uh, fell, bonds, excuse me, if the interest rates rose by 1%, it would drop by 2%. So the shorter the duration, the less interest rate risk you have, which is why we suggest that you keep that exposure pretty short when you, if you have a, a significant bond portfolio to minimize the potential loss in principle. Now, just uh, some wrap-up comments, I guess you say. Last year, as you may recall, we had in the S&P 70-70 new all-time highs. Now, that's high in any year, but especially this far into a bull market. Now, please make note of this. It's not always going to be this easy. But the, really, the only thing that changed this week were the prices. I mean, don't react to the traders' moves. These guys are very short-term oriented. And what they do is usually not related to market fundamentals. Most of the media news you hear is oriented toward uh, the traders. As someone who is oriented toward very short-term profits. Now, in the... Uh, intelligent investor there was a uh, an article he said the the stock market is manipulated multiples are being driven endlessly higher by low interest rates government spending and buybacks and flows into index funds 
Well, there may be a little truth in there, but I think that's mostly media baloney. Real GDP is at an all-time high, as are earnings for the companies that make up the market. Bottom lines were hit last year, as the lockdowns put the squeeze on many businesses, but as the economy is reopening, companies have found ways to improve their earnings, and that is what ultimately drives the market. Because strong earnings can support high valuations, last third quarter we had historically high earnings and in the next couple of weeks we're going to be getting the earnings report we'll see how we do for the fourth quarter now it's important to watch profits which are at an all-time high the return for the S&P last year was driven by earnings growth just straight simple no 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 fancy footwork no mirrors no smoke matter of fact uh, multiples compress and if they hadn't returns would have been even higher now, we still expect profit growth of 10% or more this year, but that's way below what we saw uh, last year. Now, here's another thing that I think folks aren't factoring in, in terms of saying, oh, these are uh, overvalued, because a lot of the valuations they use are older. Well, in today's world, a lot of corporations get a big chunk of their business from overseas, and that was not part of the deal for a long time. According to CalcBench, C-A-L-C-B-E-N-C-H, S&P companies now get about 40% of their revenues from outside the U.S. Apple gets 60% international. Amazon's more than 40. For Google, it's more than half. So I, I think that the uh, uh, that just be aware that that's happening and that you can get additional driving from expansion of those markets. Now, I think... I guess you could call it a conviction, is that the essential challenge to being a long-term successful investor isn't intellectual and it's not financial, but it's temperamental, emotional, if you will. It's how you react or choose not to react to market declines and or goofy news like we've had this past week. I mean, it, we are in the middle of a fiscal and monetary experiment which has no direct predecessors. So any and all economic forecasting and investment policy based on these things, let's just say it's hugely speculative. So if there ever was a time for you to just put your head down and work your investment and financial strategy and to emphasize, ignore the noise, noise this is definitely it. You know, with, with, with the course of the pandemic remaining unclear, inflation expected to keep rising and the Fed poised to raise interest rates, anything can happen and probably will. What's more, the things that feel the most certain aren't as obvious as they seem, so investors need to be aware of taking any drastic actions that, later on, they will wish they maybe could undo. For some reason, skeptics always sound smart, but optimists make money. I don't know anybody who got rich betting against either the human spirit or capitalism. And I can also report that over my 40-plus year career in investing, I've watched a whole lot of folks take their money out of the market because it had come too high too fast, or it was just too high, or overdue for a correction, or whatever. Peter Lynch, the perhaps most famous uh, mutual fund money manager, used to run the Fidelity Magellan Fund, had this comment you perhaps have heard. Far more money has been lost by people preparing for corrections are trying to anticipate corrections than has been lost in corrections themselves. Yea, verily, amen. So 
And we know finally that with regard to stocks in general, and U.S. stocks in particular, optimism is the only realism. Go back and check the record. Stocks remain the only asset class that fully captures human ingenuity, which is one of the most powerful forces in the world. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. So this is the end of this particular broadcast. I thank you very much for listening. It's truly appreciated. And, of course, as I must say, <laughs> presuming they can get to the court, go Zags. Uh, I hope uh, they can get somebody to show up to play them. Uh, so, again, thank you very much for listening. We will be back next week to talk with you more about the markets and the economy. So have a positive and productive week. My name is Mike Mayo, and I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Money, 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 money. Money, 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 money.